Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Central. Great to uh, be with you today as we continue our series, Roll Call, where we are looking at the fivefold ministry of Jesus. If you have a Bible, you will want to turn it. Thank you to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Our text for the next few weeks is going to be verses 11 through 13 of Ephesians 4. And this is what we read there. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, last week I shared that the ministry of Christ, the APES ministry of Christ, was given to the body of Christ for the purposes of the fullness of Christ. And the context for the outworking of this is, is not simply in the church, but it's actually in the world. It's in what we would also call marketplace ministry. Remember, the professional clergy at that point in time did not exist. And so last week, we encouraged you to discover your role. We uh, gave you this link, 5qcentral.com forward slash test. Some of you went on in the beginning, uh, middle of the week, and uh, there was a glitch in the system because so many of you did it, which was awesome. They had to, uh, the organization we're working with had to raise their limits, uh, which they did. So if you had a glitch in the week and you weren't able to do that, you can go back online and do that. You put in the code Central Wesleyan, and the fee there is mitigated. You will receive an email. We got a number of emails and phone calls from people saying, it doesn't work. Yes, it does work. You get an email back. If you don't get the email, check your spam. Pretty much every phone call we had, the email back went into the spam. So if that's the case, go check your spam folder, and then you'll be able to click on the link, and then from there, you will be able to go and take the test. Now, some ask, Craig, why are we doing this? There are a whole host of reasons why we're doing this. The first is that we want to empower each and every one of us to know how we're wired to know who we are, to know what role we play, not simply in the church, but also in the world. But secondly, each of these roles have what we could call strengths and weaknesses. It, there are strengths in certain roles, but there are also, in relation to another role, there are points of tension. In understanding how you are wired, you will basically begin to understand why certain conflicts happen with certain people. It's because these roles are complementary, but they're complementary because what is strong in one, uh, one, with one function isn't so strong with the next. So there are a whole host of reasons why we're doing this, but a lot of this is actually driven around helping us avoid the disruptive and divisive conflict that is often triggered by the fact that we don't know what to do when we come up against people who are wired completely different from us. And there is no doubt when you read the Scriptures that difference is a good thing. And fortunately, for many of us, difference often leads to conflict. Now, when Steve and I were planning this series, we recognized that there would be one particular challenge with one particular term, and that's the term apostle. So naturally, who gets to speak on that? Me. And so one of the obvious questions from the start that if you know anything about the scriptures, anything about theology, you'll realize that there's this question, wait a minute, uh, did, 
why do some people say that the apostles, okay, you know, apostleship, that function died with the death of the last apostle? So what we're going to do here is we want to draw a distinction between apostle with the small a and apostle with that capital A. There is a difference. There's a difference between the function of apostle and the vocation of an apostle. The vocation of apostle given to the 12 is that word written with a capital A. It's a vocation. It's a unique vocation. But there's a function of apostleship that we actually see continuing, not simply through the history of the church, but even in the New Testament itself. And this is the part that is often overlooked. Now, when I was thinking about how to explain this, I, I kind of remembered that time when my mother, when we moved in Michigan, uh, to Michigan over six years ago now, or about six years ago now, hard to believe, time's gone so quick, she bought us all these hats. She thought that with the cold weather up here, we may need them. Well, the only problem is she bought all of us the same hat. Now, I don't know whether you can see this. This is basically the Welsh flag on the front. Yes, it's the red dragon of Revelation 11 or 12, okay? And I don't like wearing it because of the history associated with it, but I'm Welsh, so it's part of my flag, right? We all know about honoring the flag. So anyway, um, the, the only problem with this was when we go into our mudroom at home, we got these like boxes with the names on it, and you keep your hats and gloves on it, right? That's what you have to do where you get loads of kids. So my hat would invariably always go missing. And now I don't wear it that often, and you can kind of see why, right? I, I really haven't got the profile to wear a hat. <laughs> the, the only hat I can get away with wearing is actually a baseball hat backwards, okay? My nose doesn't stick out that way, I don't know why, but anyway. Um, but invariably, mine would go missing on those cold winter days when I need to do something outside. And I would go to the kids and I'd say, hey, where's my hat? And they'd say, there's plenty of the others there. Why don't you just get it? And I said, because this one is my hat. And they would say to me, it's the same difference. <laughs> Have you ever heard that term, same difference? What they're basically saying is the differences are only negligible. And in a sense, they are right. They all look the same, they get the same color, they get the same flag, they're even the same size. But the point is, this one's personal, this one is mine. Okay, it's got my unique hair follicles in there, it's mine. <laughs> same difference. If you've ever heard somebody say that, same difference, what they're basically saying is that the difference is negligible. And theologically, when we talk about an apostle with a small a, an apostle with a large a, what we're talking about is a term called similarity and dissimilarity. Continuity and discontinuity. Certain things are the same, certain things change. When it comes to understanding the way that the apostolic function works today, we have to recognize that when we read some of the New Testament passages about apostle, we're actually talking about the vocation of the 12 that is dissimilar to what we're talking about today. But there are other passages, other functions of the apostle that are similar, that do apply today. To understand this, I want to draw your attention to a passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 22. It's a, this is a great passage of Scripture because in this, we, we see similar 
and dissimilar happening at the same time. In this passage, we, we see a, a, a quote here from Jesus that actually shows the vocation of the 12 apostles is completely different to anyone who holds the function of apostle today. It's absolutely clear in this. Have a look at the text with me, Luke 22, from 24 through 32. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I'm among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. Now, here we go. And I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Do you see this? This, this is a role, a vocation, a calling that is given uniquely to the 12 apostles. This is unique. This, this is dissimilar to anything that would come after. In fact, it's dissimilar to the seven people who are called apostles outside of the 12 later in the New Testament. What we're talking about here is a unique role that they had. This passage tells us that the 12 had a unique vocation while sharing a common function. What we're talking about here is that distinct vocation in verse 30. Jesus confers on them the ability to sit and judge over the 12 tribes. They would sit and rule over them. That was unique to them. And anyone holding that apostolic function ever since did not receive that vocation. So they had a distinct vocation. Secondly, we know that for the 12, in order to have that vocation, there were unique qualifiers. For example, they had to be witnesses to the resurrection. This is part of the reason why Paul's apostleship was challenged. Paul, you weren't a witness to the resurrection. And he says, oh, yes, I was. On the road to Damascus, the risen Jesus appeared to me, and I saw him. So there, were, there was a unique vocation that they had. There was also unique qualifiers. Another unique qualifier is often overlooked, and that is 2 Corinthians 12, 12, where we read this. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. This doesn't apply to everyone else who's conferred that function of apostle later in the New Testament, but to the 12 and to Paul, this isn't a mark of an apostle. Witness to the resurrection and signs, wonders, and miracles. So the 12 here, apostles with a capital A, had a unique vocation. There were unique qualifiers that they had, but at the same time, there was this common function that they shared. As I've just said, there were no less than seven other people in the New Testament who were referred to by this term apostle, the same word. 
So while there's a definite distinct vocation for the 12, while there are definite unique qualifiers, there are clear indications that the function of apostle, that expanding, pioneering role, still applied. So, for example, we can look at a couple of verses for this. Firstly, let's have a look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. While some claim that the function of apostle disappeared, they don't claim the teachers and administrators disappeared, do they? By the way, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians at least 20 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. This verse in no way can be taken to refer to the idea that apostleship was only necessary for the foundation of the church. This is not the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about a function of apostleship, not the vocation of apostle with a capital A. The function of apostleship still applied. So we can see this, the outworking of this in a number of texts. And again, what's interesting is the fact that there are a number of people who are referred to as apostles who weren't a part of the original 12. One of them is an interesting one. It, it's actually James, the Lord's brother. Now, what we read in John chapter 7 and verse 5 is this, for not even his own brothers believed in him. So there was a time when Jesus' messianic claim was rejected by his own family, by his own brothers. But clearly something changed because in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 through 8, we read this. Now, Galatians 1, 9, firstly, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Now, commentators, most commentators say this is an indication that James had that apostolic function. Some are like, eh, I'm not too sure about that, but that's when we get to 1 Corinthians 15, 7 through 8. Then he appeared to James. Resurrection appearance. Then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. James is consistently listed with the apostles and as a witness to the resurrection. Now, there are many other examples too. For example, if you want to go home and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23, you will read in there about Titus being a representative. That's the word the NIV uses, representative. If you do a search on the word representative, you will actually see that that word is the very word for apostle. What is this? He's a representative. He is an apostle. Why don't they use that word? It's because of the misunderstanding between vocation, which is and function, which is common. So they changed the term. So when it comes to this whole idea of apostle, what we are saying is, look, there is a uniqueness and a distinct vocation that apply to the 12 that is totally dissimilar to any vocation or, or you, a unique calling that apostles today will ever hold. They're totally dissimilar to us. However, in the function of apostle, 
we see in the New Testament, and I believe we see continually through the church, the need for people who are going to continually pioneer and find new ways of bringing the hope and life of Jesus to the world. So this is what we see here. Now, second, the second lesson I think we learn from uh, Luke 22 is this. And this is, a, this is an important one. Especially if you're here and you hold that apostolic function. Because this is where most of us go wrong who hold it. The reality is that apostolic leadership addresses task, not status. I grew up in a Welsh church that was actually called the Apostolic Church. It grew out of the Welsh Revival in 1904. And you know, you can decide a lot of things. You cannot decide where the Lord saves you, right? And so we were a part of this. Uh, I was a part of this church through my teenage years, and uh, the, the pastors there were really great. But one of the unique qualifiers about or marks of this church was that they actually recognized people with that apostolic function. So growing up, there was uh, Warren, his name was, he was one of the apostles. And whenever Warren would come and actually speak at our little Welsh church, people would be totally amazed. It would be, wow, can you believe an apostle is actually coming? It, it was as if there was this status associated to it that everybody else underneath actually kind of fell by the wayside. This is part of the problem with this. This is part of the problem with the use of the term. So many people who think they have this apostolic function uh, kind of confer a status on themselves that Jesus warns against over and over again. In fact, did you know that Jesus, and I think I'm right in saying this, Jesus never referred to the 12 as apostles. He never did. That came later. I think one of the reasons for this is because Jesus over and over again wanted them to realize that the function that they play in the church was more important than the status they held. That's why I love these verses in Luke 22. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. Status. Who's the best? But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. Jesus is very, very careful here to warn people. It doesn't matter what role and what function you play in the church. It's the task that is more important than the status. In Mark 9, there's a, a great story where John, the apostle John, comes to Jesus to complain. And he's complaining that there are people over there who are driving out demons in Jesus' name. And John says, Jesus, here's the problem. They are not, and I quote, one of us. They're not one of us. In what was surely a slap in the face of the disciples, Jesus tells John to let them be. And this is his answer in Mark 9, 39. He says this, do not stop him. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Do you notice how, what Jesus' answer is? Jesus' answer is me. Not you, me. Those who are not for us are against us. But this is not about you, John. It's not about you, the 12. It's actually about me. 
me. At, at the heart of that apostolic function is the realization that an apostle is ultimately a sent one. Sent by whom? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the one at the center of the apostolic function, not the apostle, and the only person of status in the church is called to be Jesus. And all too often, when we kind of get elevated through the ranks, if we're not careful, we can get to the point of believing that it's actually all about us. And I want to tell you, in that moment, that's where the abuse of power and authority happen. And if you hold that apostolic function here, you need to recognize you are sent by Jesus and the only person of status in your life should be Jesus himself. So apostles are innovators, they're visionaries, they're explorers, they're architects, they're pioneers, they're adapters. They inspire a people movement that participates in the redemptive mission of God in the world and while some with the apostolic function lorded over those who do not have this function, Jesus warns his apostles that the mission is more important than any one person. The mission requires everyone. The apes ministry of Christ is given to the body of Christ, not to an individual. And part of the danger with this apostolic function is that we are so out there driving that we forget that if we don't need other people, our vision is too small. Thirdly here, Luke 22 tells us this, and I think this is an important one for anybody holding that apostolic function. Leadership and power are cooperate before they are personal. Leadership and power are cooperate before they're personal. Biblical leadership in its most purest form, balances the personal and the corporate elements of authority and power, exousia and dunamis. Biblical leadership has to balance these two. And nowhere is this more required than with the apostolic function. And if we get this wrong, we abuse the, the function that we hold. For our personal walk with Jesus, authority and power is personal. Let me explain it like this. Most of us, we get where we want to go by car. The power of the car used appropriately gets us where we want to go. And of course, if it's a truck you've got, it's the same thing, right? All we need to do to get somewhere is to position ourselves correctly in relation to the car. If the car is in the parking lot and I am in here, I may have what I need to get home, but I'm not located in the right relationship with the car to make the trip. To harness the power of the car, I need to be in a re right relationship to it. Right? This is personal. I need to be in right relationship to something. In our Christian life, it applies the same way. God has applied, uh, made available to us the power that we need to do what we're called to do and to be what we're called to be. The challenge that we have is to put ourselves personally in the right relationship with God to harness that power. We understand this, right? Power is personal. It is true. Authority is personal. And, and to get that power and that authority, we need to position ourselves in right relationship with God. Power is personal. Authority is personal. When it comes to the APES ministry of Christ, however, power and authority are, get this, corporate. 
The, bond, the ministry of Christ, the apes ministry of Christ, is given to the body of Christ. Power is corporate, not personal. Jesus' apes ministry is not given to a person, it's given to a people. And when someone with an apostolic function holds to a hierarchical, or what we would call that top-down view of leadership and power, they often prioritize personal power over corporate power. The power of Christ is in the body of Christ, not in a person. This is a warning shot across the bow, if you understand it properly, to this celebrity-driven culture that we're in, even in the church. Power is not personal in the church. Authority is not personal in the church. It's corporate. To harness the ministry of Christ powerfully, the apostolic function needs to work in tandem with the prophetic, the evangelistic, the shepherding, and the teaching. If we don't do this, we will never experience the full power of Christ. Unfortunately, however, too many people who have this kind of leadership gift view power and authority inherent in the function of leadership that they hold as personal. They view themselves as top of the pile, front of the pack, and yet apostles are not top of the pile, so much as catalysts for an awakening of a movement that requires every single function for the fullness of Christ to complete its task. And part of the challenge that I've experienced having that apostolic function, and by the way, my, my test was 49 out of 50 on apostle. 49 out of 50. You know what my challenge is? I'm so far out there that I need to slow down and make sure that people come along with me. And so when it comes to even our elder board meetings, we now have discussion items, and it is not unusual for us to spend seven months talking about a topic. It was really funny. We were discussing one topic at the last elders meeting, and one of our elders basically said, you know, we've been talking about this thing for seven months. It's time we do it. I make a resolution that we do boom, boom, boom. Everybody was on board. I thought, great, I was ready for this eight months ago, but this is good. See, the, the part of the problem or the challenge of being in a, uh, having that apostolic function is that we're out there, we're pioneering, and if we're not careful, we don't give the other functions the time they need to catch up. And if we basically stand around and basically say, well, you have to follow me because I'm the leader, even if you're not ready to do so, we're actually mistaking the fact that the ministry of Christ is corporate, not personal. And if an apostle does not need any of those other functions, then essentially their vision is too small, not too big. So we see here this real challenge. The focus for the apostolic function is on Jesus' work, which his body is called to continue. Acts 15 is a really good example, I think, of what this looks like, of what it's like to work through complex organizational stuff. Now, Acts 15 is that Jerusalem council. It's that 
conversation they were having about what do we require of Gentiles? Do they need to be circumcised or not? It's a massive conversation that the church were involved in. But clearly, when you read that text, there was a lot of tension around in that conversation. It's a conversation of equals, and at the end of the conversation, it's the apostle, Peter, who stands up as the mouthpiece and represents the willingness to buck the trend and actually take the gospel to places and peoples it's never been before. But have a look at verses 25 through 28, noting the words, we and us. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them over to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. If you go into Acts 16 verse 4, you see that this was carried out. But do you notice the we and the us there? Part of the function that we have in leadership is just to recognize the biblical authority and power for the ministry of Christ involves all of us, not a chosen few. And the challenge for any of you out there who hold that apostolic function is to make sure that you slow down enough to allow the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to actually come alongside you. So with that in mind, let's have a look at three challenges. Three challenges I think we have when it comes to this role of apostle. The, the first one is this. If any of you hold the apostolic function, you have to ask yourself this question over and over again. Whose kingdom am I building? Remember, an apostle is essentially, this is what it means, a sent one. Sent to do what? To pioneer, to expand. Sometimes to go against the flow. But in doing that, we can never be so captivated by the idea that we miss the fact that we are about God's kingdom, not ours. Now, I've frequently been asked to describe my passion for the church and the mission that God gave to her. Some people came to me a little while ago and said, Craig, if I were to sum you up, I would sum you up in two words, word and mission. And I think they got that right. I love God's word and I love the mission of the church. Word and mission. And I've frequently been asked to describe my passion for it. And I reply by reminding the questioner that I live a long way from home and that the family and friends I grew up with are nowhere near me. Some mornings I wake up and I just miss home. People get that. But then I say this. The best way I can describe what I feel about the church and the mission that God gave me is to call it an inverted homesickness. I may wake up and occasionally miss home, but every day I live with a passion to call that place home, which is most in need of a touch of Jesus. In this passion, all other passions die. Before this vision, all other visions fade. And if you hold the apostolic function, you need to be driven by that dominating vision that actually becomes your anthem. It's your rallying cry that basically drowns out every other voice, wherever God has sent you. Whether it be in the church, whether it be in the marketplace, whether it be in a school or a college, you are essentially sent to expand Christ's mission, which is defined as 
extending the rule and the reign of God. And the fruit of that is what? Shalom. It's healing and wholeness. Remember, the 12 and the 70 or the 72 were sent by Jesus before the church ever existed on the basis that the kingdom had come. And the basis for the church is the kingdom. And apostles are sent by Christ because his people, the church, participate in what he himself is doing in the world. And expanding that kingdom rule and reign of God is the primary focus of an apostle. And remember, the the gospel is a holistic gospel that touches every aspect of human existence, whether that be mental, whether that be psychological, whether that be emotional or social, environmental, and spiritual. There are seven dimensions that the gospel touches. Wherever God has placed you, ask yourself this at the end of every day, at the end of every week, how have I extended the rule and the reign of God where God has placed me? If you're an apostle, that has to be your driving motivation. Secondly, I think we need to ask ourselves this. If you have the apostolic function, ask yourself, how do I handle resistance? How do I handle resistance? If you hold that apostolic function, what is your gut reaction when the direction you are proposing is said not to match the organization that you're leading? What do, you, what do you think then? If you're a human, there should be a sigh in that moment. None of us likes that kind of comment. But when we understand the fivefold ministry, we also recognize that it's the prophet's role to raise potential issues. That's what they do. We may not like it, but we have to work through it. If you hold that apostolic function, let me ask you, how do you handle resistance? In the Old Testament, we see David being confronted by Joab, the commander of the army. King David wanted to do a census of, his, of the number of his troops, and Joab, that prophetic voice, came to him and said, David, why are you doing this? Now, Joab's point wasn't that God doesn't like math. The Bible does have the book of Numbers, by the way. It's the book of Numbers because there's a lot of numbers in it. Joab's point was, David, you're doing this for the wrong reason. But David, as their apostolic leader, didn't listen, and he counted anyway. And as a result of that, 1,000 mother's sons died that day. It's a terrible story of what happens when an apostolic leader doesn't engage with the resistance that's there and presses ahead anyway. People die, visions die when leaders lead like that. So let me ask you again, if you have that apostolic function, how do you handle resistance? When key leaders don't want to go the new direction, what do you do? Do you try to understand why? Is it because they like things the way they are? Is it that they are too risk averse to try something new? Is it because they just don't see where things are heading and why? In other words, do they simply need more time or is there no amount of time that you would give them that would ever cause them to change their mind? If that's the case, then all too often a leader may need to lead that way anyway. But how do you handle resistance? If you have that apostolic function, if you have a leadership role, how do you handle resistance? Remembering that the ministry of Christ is given to the body of Christ. We need the body. 
And that means we have to work through resistance in a biblical way as difficult and as frustrating as that may be. The last thing I wanted to share here was there's something else that became, a, uh, be, became mindful to me as I was going through this, is that some of you may well be prophetic, uh, kind of shepherding, teaching uh, people, and you may be rearing an apostolic child. In other words, let me put it a different way, some of you may well be introverted parents raising an extroverted child. Any of you with me on that? You get that portion? One of the challenges, I think, of parenting is when you hold a prophetic or a shepherding function and your child is like an apostle or an evangelist, they are social butterflies. Another way of saying this is, to, is that extrovert-introvert reality. An extroverted child needs and craves interaction as much as that introverted parent craves solitude. And just as the parent needs time to process, think, and recharge, so the extroverted child needs social interaction to do the very same thing. And if you're an introvert with an extrovert child, or if you hold one of those quieter, stiller, more reflective functions, and your child is just going to be one of those people out there, there is something that you need to engage with here, because this can be rather difficult. Extroverted children are outgoing. They love to be around lots of people and other kids, preferring to play in groups, and they talk a lot. Being the parent, it actually falls on you to meet your child's needs. Introverted parents can do this effectively, can't do this effectively, and that unless they replenish their own batteries first and on a regular basis. And I think that's the key to cultivating innovation at home when you are an introvert with, with, uh, surrounded by extroverts, or if you're a shepherd and a prophet uh, bringing up a, a, a apostolic and evangelistic functioning kids. I think the second thing I'd say to this is you, that you'll need to create opportunities for your child to interact with others, whether other adults, your extended family, or playgroups. Third, you'll need to indulge some of their crazy ideas every now and again. That kind of thing can be tough, but it's necessary for them to be able to just get out there and pioneer, even though that thing will either drive you nuts or it will make you very anxious. I think this is the reality in this too. Some of us are introverts and we have extroverts at home. Some of us have the more quieter gifts of functions and roles, and some of us have the functions that are just basically out there. Let me just say, if you're parenting extroverts and you're an introvert, then pray this prayer. God, give our family the courage to take risks rooted in the Spirit's leading. Help us to step out into adventure and liminality where real growth most often occurs. Thank you for my, put your child's name in, my Jenny's bravery to try new things. And may she not lose that innovative and creative passion as she enters whatever stage of life she's going into, middle school or high school. If you're someone who is surrounded by people who are more adventurous and more bold than you are, then can I encourage you just to recognize that and just to give it to God and live in such a way that you don't stifle their creativity. So that's the apostolic function. We recognize the, the unique vocation of the 12, but we recognize that God has still given the gift to the church 
of people who are called the pioneer to expand, to generate new ideas. And if you hold that function, embrace that calling with every fiber of your being. But recognize that that is a gift that is perfectly expressed within the context of community. As tempting as it is for you to be up there and out there on your own, God is calling you to take a step back and embrace the people that he's placed around you and lead the people around you to the place where God is calling you. Let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Let's pray together. As I pray here, 909, Pastor Larry is going to come up in, in just a moment and he's going to lead it out. And in this room, God is going to challenge us to move as we hear that song, Move. But Father, we thank you with every fiber of our being for Jesus. We thank you that he is not dead. He is alive and he's alive in us and he wants to move through us. And Father, for all of the apostles out there, Father, I pray that they would recognize that they have been sent by this very Jesus into the places where he's placed them. And God, I pray that whatever your Holy Spirit has said to us, that he would seal that and he would help us move into the future that you have for us. God, we love you and we ask you to move through us in Jesus' name.